Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with John Litchfield. John is a partner in Foley's Chicago office and a member of the firm's Labor and Employment Practice Group. In this discussion, John reflects on growing up in Flossmoor, Illinois, attending Miami University for undergrad, and earning his JD from Loyola University Chicago School of Law. But of course, his path isn't exactly that straightforward, as you will soon hear. In particular, John was someone who did not know what he wanted to do, and it took him some time to figure out that law school was for him. And along the way, he actually also earned his master's degree from the University of Edinburgh and held a number of part-time jobs. John is also very candid and shares that, but for seeing someone else go to law school, it never would have occurred to him that he could do it as well. So he talks about how he chose his law school, what the experience was like, how he found Foley, how he figures out his practice group, and so much more. And I also get him to talk a little bit about the day-to-day of his practice, what keeps him busy these days. And in particular, he dives into the role of labor and employment in a corporate transaction, which is something that I have not previously talked about on the show. In addition to that, we of course share a lot of other stories and anecdotes. And towards the end, I get to have John talk about his commitment as a member of the LGBTQ community to furthering the rights of the broad umbrella of people that are included within that community. John has had a number of leadership roles and is really a tremendous advocate both within Foley and within the broader legal community. So it's wonderful to talk about that. And then we wind down by getting John to give some advice on the importance of finding a practice that you're passionate about. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Litchfield. John, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to have you start how I have every Foley attorney start, which is by giving a short professional introduction. Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me. I am John Litchfield. I am a partner, sort of newish partner in the Chicago office uh, of Foley and Lardner. And my, my practice is labor and employment law. And I do everything from counseling to litigation to M&A, which I think is a great way to practice employment law because you get to know just about everybody uh, in the firm in a different capacity. And you get to touch a lot of clients. So from my perspective, I, I like to consider myself sort of a all-around employment lawyer, and I, I enjoy my practice. A jack-of-all-trades employment lawyer. And we will talk about that. But on this show, I get you to say what you do professionally, and then we don't talk about it for a while. We got to build up to it. But I will say, I do think getting you on has been a long time coming. There's a lot of people who I'd love to get on the show, but you've certainly been at the top of the list. But I've actually had to step away a bit from L&E because my prior practice leanings of L&E and labor and employment. And of course, as many people know, having good friends in the group, I'm like, ah, I seem kind of biased. Like I have too many employment (laughs) lawyers. Foley does other things. (laughs) Let's pause on employment, but I've finally been able to circle back and get you on. So first things first, John, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Well, let me just touch on the employment thing for one second. I know you said we're not going to talk on it, but it's because we have the best personalities. (laughs) So that's why you have a bias. I'm just I'm just going to throw that out. Wait, because you're the people side of the firm. And also, there's a yeah. number of people who hold multiple leadership roles in the firm, too. So there's a couple there's a couple things going on there. But, you know, I heard what you just said. Yes. Sorry to grab your podcast from you and then <laughs> totally hijack it. But so where am I from? So I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, a little tiny town of around 9,000 people called Flossmoor, Illinois, which most people, when they've heard of it for the first time, think that the only people who live there must be dentists because it's called Flossmoor. But it's not. It's a really awesome community that I actually just moved back to with my husband from the great city of Chicago. But that's where I grew up. I was born uh, and raised there. My parents are not originally from there, but that's where they ended up. And it's a very cool place. So just about 20 miles south of the loop in Chicago. 
And give me a little snapshot. Let's say I find you late elementary school, middle school. What is what is life like for little John Litchfield? Like what are yeah. what are you into? Hobbies, interests? Tell me more. So elementary school, I went to a place called Western Avenue Elementary, which for those of you from Chicago, you will know that Western Avenue is a large thoroughfare uh, that goes right from north to south in the city. And it actually runs right past my elementary school growing up. And so I was there. And my big thing when I was in elementary school is I was in the Western Avenue Children's Choir. And I also participated in several of the school musicals. I played Mr. Sourberry in Oliver, uh, in a production of Oliver, which if you've ever seen the movie Oliver. Yes. The original, right? With like, I don't remember the actors in it, but the original Oliver. A little blonde boy. That's what I'm thinking of. A little blonde boy who plays Oliver. (laughs) Totally. And then Fagin and, you know, whatever. It's it's great. So, but anyway, so I play Mr. Sourberry. And in the movie, Mr. Sourberry and Mrs. Sourberry are the undertakers. And Oliver comes to work from the orphanage to the undertakers because he's so unruly at the orphanage that he can't, they just kick him out after... You know, he asked for more gruel. So he goes to work for the Undertakers, and the Undertakers are just these sort of solemn, really terrible people. And it's a short scene in the movie, but it's actually in the musical production sort of a really fun role to play because there's this whole like number that Mr. and Mrs. Sourberry do, and it's all about a funeral procession and how they're trying to like extol the virtues of owning a funeral home on Oliver and how he can, you know, grow up to be this funeral director or whatever. So anyway, that was me, Mr. Sourberry. (laughs) And this is, I'm sorry, this is elementary school, middle school. When is this? Yeah, it is. I was in fourth grade. Yeah. That's amazing. I don't actually know of really many elementary schools that have much of a theater program. I mean, middle school, high school for sure. Also, I'm a bit of a musical theater enthusiast. Another reason why we like each other so much. The fact that we're talking about Oliver five minutes into this podcast is making me very, very happy. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, and and to your point, I mean, I think it was pretty unique that we had like full on production musicals. I was Lumiere in fifth grade in a production of Of the Beast. Why wouldn't I be, uh-huh. right? I actually still have the costume, but you're not. You know, you're bringing me, you're bringing me back, and I apologize to listeners for this. Maybe, maybe this is a really boring aside, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm pretty sure we're around the same age. And so, yes, Beauty and the Beast came out in middle school, right around then. I was, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And for one of our sings, we learned all of Be Our Guest, which is probably why to this oh, yeah. day I know all of it. But it got rained out, and they had us wearing these like multicolor crepe paper. Like, I don't know what the word is, like necklaces, it's not, but it's not a necklace. It's like this big puffy thing around your neck and around your wrist. And all the kids got rained on and all the colors started bleeding into whatever we were wearing. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we were outside. And I just have this, like this very strong memory of that. But yeah, so we're the classic days of Disney generation. The Totally. Yes. Okay. But so totally. does, does the theater and singing and whatnot, does that happen also in middle school and high school or primarily elementary school? So good question. So I would say I got a bout of anxiety in middle school that sort of comes along with like teenage life, right? Or preteen life at that point. And I participated in musicals and I auditioned for Little Shop of Horrors for the Mr. I think it's Muchnik or something like that. It's like the guy who owns the shop, right? That Seymour works in. I auditioned for that role because I thought it was a really cool role and tons of fun. And I didn't get it. And I sort of got like some like, I don't know, sidekick gig, you know, and it wasn't very fun. And I sort of took it personally. And and you were 12. And that was that. Yeah. And that was that. <laughs> and so I was always in choir, but that was that's a group activity. And so I really enjoyed the group activity because I could, you know, I didn't have solos. I was just sort of in the choir. So could be around the theater kids without being a theater kid. So the early days of my life were definitely more assertive, I suppose, and uh, less fearful than than once I became a preteen and teen, because then all of a sudden this anxiety kicked in and and there you go. I didn't this audition for anything else. <laughs> I was a theater kid. And in some ways I was almost like, you know, there's stereotypes about the theater kids, except I was like the stage crew side of theater kids. Mm, so whatever yep. you think about the actors, I would say the the kids that are like building the sets and running the show, like we all had our own stereotypes as well as almost being like more odd <laughs> than the actors. Yeah. So that's yeah. right. I had about 2000 hours into my high school theater. I was I had a member of the International Thespian Society <laughs> because of that. That's and, awesome. Yep. And rarely do I get to speak of it. But um, OK, so take me to high school. 
what are you into in high school? When do you start thinking about college? Where'd you go? What? Tell me all about that time. Yeah. So went to home in Flossmore High School, which is the high school in Flossmore, Illinois. And really, I think when I was a freshman, I was sort of a lost, a bit of a lost soul. Didn't really know where I fit in. I hated junior high, like most people do. It was really pretty miserable for me. And so went to high school thinking, a little nervous, I think, as every freshman is, and really thinking, like, what the heck is this whole thing going to be about? So I enrolled at my parents' instigation in several of the honors classes that I didn't think I was really ready for. Like, I personally wasn't ready, right? So like English or biology or whatever else was sort of like the honors classes. The one I didn't do was algebra. I don't know why my parents didn't push me to like enroll in honors classes in algebra, but maybe they just thought you're not good at math, which is true. (laughs) And so don't worry about it. But I remember like early freshman year, I was starting to make friends that were not people I grew up with, right? People that went to the different school that fed into my high school. And it was mostly girls and like, we really just had this great thing going on. And I suddenly found people that like, I could go to a football game with and not watch football. And I don't know, like just hang out outside of school. And so I sort of built this really cool friend group, mostly through classes, not really through the extracurriculars. Although I did swimming and I, which was, you know, a great sport. And I did choir, which was a ton of fun, but it really just sort of built itself organically. And so I had these great group of friends that just developed over time that I kept through high school and then, you know, and I still have them as friends today. In fact, I got a text message from one of them just before our podcast and was like, um, by the way, I sent you an invitation to our wedding. Are you coming? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, shoot. I forgot to RSVP. But yes, I'm coming. That's that's. But yes, I'm coming. That's great. Well, and I love one because I say this on many of the podcasts. It's important for me to ask you and the other Foley attorneys about this time in your life, because part of this show is showing that we're just normal people. And you you didn't say, well, I was four years old and I decided that legal jurisprudence was my passion, right? Like we've, we've, we've taken 10 minutes <laughs> Definitely to, not. Right, to show that, you know, we're all just normal people figuring it out with lots of interests. So I love everything that you've shared. What was that process for you then trying to figure out college? Yeah. College was an interesting question because I knew sort of just from my upbringing that like I had to like, that was what I was going to do right after high school. I don't think I would have, there was there wasn't another path set out for me, right? So I have a dad who's a professional. I have a mom who's very driven and community oriented, but very like focused her energy on making sure that my brother and sister and I had everything we needed growing up to make sure that we were successful. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, you answered what I was going to ask, which was what role did your parents play in driving that? And you also mentioned siblings, which I'd forgotten to ask about. So in terms of birth order, where are you? I'm the oldest. So it's me. And then by four years, then my brother's behind me. So he and I were only in school together in elementary school when he was in kindergarten, first grade, and I was in fifth grade, fourth and fifth grade. And then we were never in school together again. But I will tell you, he followed me to college, oh. even though we weren't in college at the same time. He will not like that I told you that. But <laughs> And now everyone's <laughs> going to hear it. So you guys can talk about it when you next to each other. That's right. That's right. It's out in the ether for all people to hear. So tell me about your sister and then we'll talk college. I can't forget about my sister. So she's 12 months younger than my brother. So she and he are like Irish twins and, you know, they're like, you know, best friends and butt buddies. And I was the responsible older sibling for most of my life. So. So where did the responsible older sibling go to college and why? I went to Miami University in Ohio. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of a like anecdote that I think is silly, but also like this is where my head was at in terms of picking colleges, right? So I had no desire to stay close to home. I really just was not interested in it for no good reason. I mean, I have a loving family, like it's great. And there's a lot of schools around here, by the way. There are plenty of colleges, but go on. Tons. So in hindsight, I probably should have applied to a state school and just stayed in state, but that is what it is. But I was looking really sort of at at schools in the Midwest and then some schools outside the Midwest, but really trying to get sort of a distance away so that a weekend visit from or a daytime visit from the family was not in the cards necessarily. I couldn't just drop in. There's no just popping down to see you. 
so that there were some plans. Like yeah. if you if you were coming to visit, there would be a plan involved. So that was sort of the goal. I applied to, gosh, a whole host of schools. Beloit, which was way too close for home for me. St. Olaf in Minnesota, which I ended up getting a scholarship to. I convinced my dad that I should apply to Emory University, even though he sort of had this whole like concept of like, well, you should really get go no further than 250 miles from Flossmoor. I don't know why that was. I just imagine him taking out a map and like a compass and be like, here. I did that. (laughs) I did that. I was like, but you went outside of. (laughs) (laughs) My goal was to get outside, but he he basically said like, if you do that, you realize we will not visit, and also like. Like your life will be more difficult if you're too far away. So it was fair enough. You know, whatever. Washington University, Notre Dame, I applied to Notre Dame. Didn't get into Notre Dame, but I would have gone there had I gotten in. And I think it's fate that I didn't. And Miami. And Miami was actually had a babysitter growing up that went to Miami, which is why I looked at it in the first place. And we visited on, you know, a couple of occasions and I had visited other campuses as well. I loved Washington University. I loved South Bend. You know, they were really cool places. But there was something really special about Oxford, Ohio that sort of spoke to me. And what's really funny is I had this scholarship from St. Olaf and that's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's literally snow country. So it was a really good scholarship to go there, and it's a really small school, and it was sort of hard to pass up. But we went to visit Miami, and we went to this like little cafe, and they were serving Coca-Cola in glass bottles. And I don't know if you remember this, but in like 1999, 2000, like that was like a thing, you know, like Coca-Cola was sort of bringing back their glass bottles. And I was like, oh, they have Coke in glass bottles. This is where I'm coming to school. So... <laughs> <laughs> That apparently that made the difference. But, you know, there's an emotional connection is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And so many of life's decisions are made that way. And the people who've listened to the show for more than one episode have likely heard me say something about how my decision as to where I went to college was not particularly hard hitting. There are schools that everyone knows about now that I didn't even know about because I, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin. It was like you applied to the University of Wisconsin, you applied to Minnesota because there's reciprocity randomly, Emory was like my number one. Don't ask me why, but it was. I visited. I was like, well, that's where I'm going. So everything else is like, whatever. Totally. <laughs> applied to American University in DC because they send me a fee-, fee waiver. And I applied to like a handful of other schools. Where did I go? I went to American University where I'd never visited because the money just turned out right. And then Emory, I got in, but it would have cost me more. And there was no rhyme or reason to where I even applied. Like, right. other than just- same. Whatever my 17-year-old self figured out, like my parents, they went to college, they were around, they were useful in some ways, but also not. (laughs) (laughs) I would, yep, that was, that's accurate. Yeah, but so the glass Coke bottles, they seal the deal, you do go, what's your major and just, I guess in a few words, what was your college experience like? Yeah. So I think I mentioned my dad is a physician or I mentioned he's a professional, but he's a physician. And so I went thinking I'd go and do medicine. That was sort of my like, okay, well, you know, it's in the family. It's it's, it's what we doctor. do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Why not? And I took one chemistry class my freshman year and wanted to just like crawl into a ball and never come out of my bedroom. I mean, it was terrible. And I got terrible grades like as a medicine major. Like it's just, you know, pre-med major. I just didn't, I didn't jive with me. Even though I think generally, I mean, I like science. I'm, I'm like a believer in science, but it just was not my thing. My brain doesn't work that way. So no, now we need to pivot. So what happened? You're like, no longer pre-med. So second semester, I took poli-sci 101 and fell in love with it. It was all about the American political system. And it was fascinating and it was, it was fun. It was interesting. I had actually run for and won, I guess, whatever it is in college, but I was a student senator from my dorm. So like that. Student government, all of that. Student government. And now I'm starting to see the interests. I'm starting to see things coalesce for eventually attending law school. I get it now. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. It starts to come together. Right. So really interested in that. And I was in choir, of course, because that's where my people are. And so I stayed in in choir all through college. Um, But then I think it was my sophomore year, or maybe it was that second semester freshman year, that I officially switched majors and completely abandoned all my science and, or my hard science and went into 
political science. And then I had a, a minor in Spanish linguistics. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yo hablo un poco español, y, but it really it was about linguistics. Okay. And I was studying the history of the language, which was really interesting to me and various dialects in different parts of the Spanish-speaking world. So it wasn't really like Spanish major minor standard, you know? I mean, it's, it was really very different. But it sort of goes along with the social sciences, right? It's all about sort of culture and history and, you know, influences. And that's what I loved about political science. So it sort of went together, sort of hand in hand. Now, at that point, did you have any thoughts on, and it's so funny because we're all, you know, closer to 20 years, maybe more away from some of these decisions. But did you have a thought as to what you were going to do with these degrees after college? It's a really good question. The answer is probably not. I mean, I was, what, 20? Yeah. You know, so literally 20 years ago, as of two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. And that's, no, I don't think I did. I never thought law school. I sort of thought, like, that's too hard. It's too, it's too much in the distance. It's not like, I don't, lawyers are boring, you know, like that just wasn't really my thing. Right. Like, why would I do that? I like this stuff, but why would I do that? Why would I do that? Like yeah. this, this stuff is fascinating. So my degree was actually in international and European politics. That was, no, I lied. It was in foreign relations is what it was. But I had a advisor at the School of Political Science, Laura Neek, who I'll never forget because she was a very good teacher, good professor, very challenging but also my academic advisor. And she and I met one time and she sat me down and she goes, John, what are you doing with your life? And I sat there and I thought, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm in college. Like, this is great. I'm having the time of my life. I'm only a junior. Like, what the heck? Why are you asking me this question? I got a whole nother year. So it was a good question. And she said, have you ever thought about law school? And I said, no, I don't want to do law school. And she said, well, it might be something that you should think about at some point in your life. But what do you want to do with your, you know, political science degree, your international relations degree? And I thought, well, I want to do policy. I'm like interested in international relations. Like that's what I want to like do. And she said, yeah, but what? <laughs> like, how, like, what are you doing day to day with that? <laughs> like what? Like, okay, great. But so that meeting was sort of like a, a little bit of a wake up call, though I'm still only 20, maybe even 19 at the time. I don't know. And living my college best life. And so... About a year later, it's probably my fresh, my first semester, freshman year, maybe my second semester, actually, we had another career conversation. And she said, have you ever thought about, she said, I know you haven't decided on law school. I know that's not, that's not in your mind. But have you ever thought about another professional degree where you can explore without committing to policy, right, to a policy direction? And I had not. And so she suggested that I look in the UK for a program, a master's degree, essentially in political science, where I'd explore like sort of policy stuff. And so I applied to a bunch of different programs because I thought, well, that's great. I should go live in the UK for a year. Why not? And got into the University of Edinburgh and um, decided to go there for that. My master's is in international and European politics. I got it mixed up for you a few minutes ago. But that's where I decided to go after undergrad. Which is so interesting. Like I see that on your LinkedIn mm -hmm. and I'm. it's wonderful to have you connect the dots to that because it's not many a career advisor that would recommend that. Like, why don't you go abroad to study, you know, international and European politics, which is so neat. And I imagine it was an interesting year, maybe to say the least, but. Very interesting year. I'm glad she suggested it because sort of like I was telling you earlier, with college, like it was sort of like, okay, that was my, I had, that was the path that was laid out for me. Maybe in my life, like if that wasn't the path that was laid out, I would have taken some time to sort of figure myself out. Laura Neek and suggesting that was sort of saying, figure yourself out, right? Like use this year, you can do it. It's a year, additional year of your life. You're only 21, 22, whatever. Figure yourself out this year, which she didn't say that, but that's sort of the implication yes. that she had. And pick a master's up while you're doing it. And pick a master's up while you're doing yeah. it. That's exactly right. Might as well. And you can parlay that into a PhD if you really like the policy stuff. If not, you can come home and, you know, you're further credentialed. Yep. You're no worse off. So is it while you were doing that, that law school comes up again? Because it, it doesn't look like you really took any time off between the two. So how does law school come onto the scene? Well, good question. So I actually had a boyfriend at the time. 
sort of between end of my senior year of college and right before I left for the UK, who was a finance major at the University of Illinois and a Spanish minor and sweet guy from the South suburbs. And he was going to law school. And I thought, well, this is weird. Like, why don't I just consider law school? So it was, and that relationship didn't work out, but it planted a seed. Like if somebody who's a finance major you know, at the University of Illinois with a Spanish minor can apply for and go to law school at Loyola University of Chicago. Why shouldn't I think about it? That's great. So it plants the seed, but part of you's like, oh, if he can do that, I think I actually could do this. I wasn't so sure before, but if he could do it, I could totally do it. Absolutely. Like some weird connection. I don't know. Again, in some 20-year-old's mind. So yeah, so that's it. I mean, I, I went to grad school, but right before I went to grad school, I sort of had made a decision I would at least try to apply for law school. So went through the program and loved it. I mean, it really was a life, a unique life-altering experience in, in Scotland. And I had some really great opportunities there, and it was great. I was homesick. I mean, I, I really yeah. missed the U.S. by the time I was done. So I was really ready to come home. And I did, and then decided I was going to buckle down and study for the LSAT. And so it took um, a year, maybe a little bit more than a year off. I can't remember exactly how the timing worked out. But worked at Benny's Beverage Depot and worked as a substitute teacher at home in Flossmoor High School and lived at home and studied for the LSAT and got a terrible score. Oh, and I also was working at Senator Durbin's office at the time. What an interesting set like set of things to be doing. Just I just want to just unpack that for one moment. Benny's Beverage Depot, which is where anyone in Chicago area knows is where they sell all your what liquor and alcohol needs are going to be at Benny's. You were substitute teaching and working for, did you say Dick Senator Durbin? Durbin? Yeah, for Senator Durbin. Yeah. Okay. That's Who's still a senator. Yes. <laughs> yep. So I was doing all those things at the same time. So I was a, I guess I was an intern, although I wasn't in school, so I don't exactly know what you would call it, but, but somebody who was working for Senator Durbin, I guess, in some sort of volunteer capacity. Yep. And I was there maybe three or four days a week. I would take the train down from my parents' house. The maybe two days a week I wasn't working there, I was on call as a substitute teacher. And then the weekends I worked at, at Benny's. I do have to ask, any lessons in particular from Benny's? And I only ask this because there's it's not the it's not the same, but I've talked to a number of our lawyers sooner prior life were either in food service or bartenders or you know, what we do now is very different, but it's still professional services. We have clients. And I, I don't know. I'm just wondering if there's anything you gleaned while you were there in particular. I mean, yeah. Like, I think the most valuable part of my experience at Benny's was not working the cash register, <laughs> although I learned how to count, I guess, uh, which was good. But it was it was the break room. It was the smoke breaks, right? I mean, it was, and you know, I don't smoke, but I would hang out with the smokers and we would just get to know each other on like a really sort of just, I don't want to say intimate because it wasn't intimate, but like on a real life basis, right? I mean, you learned about people's relationships and their dogs and their kids and their, you know, their financial struggles and all this stuff that they were dealing with on a, on a day-to-day basis that, you know, little 21-year-old, 22-year-old John Litchfield didn't really have to like deal with living at home, but I got to really sort of feel that from people. And there there were people whose entire career was in that, you know, retail like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that perspective, like all sorts of perspective on the lives of others, and some of which is probably sort of relevant what you do now with labor and employment. I mean, we'll get there. It totally is. But yes. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I had a bunch of odd jobs like that. You know, I worked in, I worked in catering. I worked in a restaurant. I worked, the Binnie's was a really interesting job. I had to take a test to work at Binnie's. That was really funny. And it actually did involve math. Well, it's important for me to get people to share that because as we're recruiting, you know, recruiting lawyers and as, you know, law students listen to this, I've met a lot of people who will discount that sort of work, right? As if it's not relevant. And one, it is. A lot of people have had all sorts of odd jobs and it actually makes them better lawyers because they're better at connecting with people. But because the legal profession can be somewhat prestige based and sort of snooty, People will decide that that you know that experience isn't relevant or isn't helpful, and I'm I'm here to tell you that it it is, and that a lot of attorneys have done everything from being servers or working as substitute teachers. One of our partners talked about working at Kinkos when she was in law school <laughs> at Splenda Morgan. So I, I just think it's important to bring that out to show people like like I keep saying there's no prototypical path or prototypical background. But so you do all that, 
You mentioned the LSAT didn't go amazingly. So what what did you do then? I don't remember to this day how they score LSATs, but it was not a good score. It was one that I really shouldn't have probably been considered by uh, some law schools I applied to, but I did anyway. And I wasn't about to take it again. I just thought, you know, it was torture to study for it. Like, it's just not my thing. Um, and I decided not to take it again. So I would just ride on my score. And I actually, I have to say, I, I didn't talk to Senator Durbin about it. He's a lawyer, but I did talk to his chief of staff. And I, I was like, what would you do if you were me? You know, what, what, would you like take it again? And he said, he he basically said exactly what I said, which was, no, don't do it. Like, see if you can get in. If you can, who cares about the LSAT score when you're a, finally a lawyer, you know? So, um, so I applied to a bunch of schools. I got into what was then John Marshall, which is now, I think, UIC Law, mm-hmm. and got in there. I applied to DePaul and Kent and Northwestern um, and got rejected from all of those. And then I applied to Loyola, And they called me and said, you applied for the full-time day program. What do you think about the evening program? And I said, initially I said, no, thank you. I said, I really just want to get through this in three years. I have no interest in in the evening program. And then my dad had a guy that he worked with who was in the business office of my dad's practice, who later in life became a lawyer and knew the admissions officer at Loyola. And he said, he called the admissions officer without me really knowing it. And and he basically told me, you need to talk to Pam Bloomquist and ask if you can get into the evening program because it's it's worth it. That's what I did. That's you know what a lot of successful lawyers do. So I went back to Loyola and called Pam and she said, all right, yeah, you're in to the evening program if you want it. So I, I got in and it was the school I wanted to go to, partly because that ex-boyfriend I mentioned yep. was there. And yep. I thought, well, he's smart, so yep. I should You'd go set there. out to do that. Now, it looked a little different than what you'd assumed, but that was you You achieved what you'd set out to do. That's exactly right. He actually ended up being my TA in one of my tour That's classes. really, really funny. Also, I have to say, and this is a disclaimer, because the thing about the LSAT, I've met a lot of people who either didn't score as well as they wanted Maybe they did retake it, maybe they didn't, or maybe they went somewhere, maybe they transferred. And I, just for those who are listening to this for their like own advice, this is a really personal decision. I don't want anyone to take away to be like, oh, I can just get whatever I want and I'll figure it out. And you, you can, that is one road and that is what you're able to do. But I don't want anyone listening to this to think like, oh, my LSAT score doesn't matter at all. Oh, it does <laughs> matter, but it does matter. I mean, I wasn't, I, it wasn't the worst score in the world, but it, it does matter. But it matters in the sense that like, okay, I could have taken it again or, you know, and I think they average the scores or something like that, or they yes, used to there's anyway. some of that. Kind of, yep. But it's, but beyond that, it's also, you got to show that you're interested, right. And, and show that you're worth it. And so a test, some of us are bad at testing. I'm a bad test taker. You know I mean? That's just, I've, I've never been a good standardized test taker logic. I know I shouldn't say this because I'm a partner to law firm, but logic is not my strong suit. <laughs> and that's a huge part of the LSAT. And I'm sure that's where my score was not so great, but Ultimately, it was about saying that, yes, that's my score, but I have much more to offer than mm-hmm. just a score, right? Yep. And and it's not the greatest score, but I guarantee it's not the worst score you've ever seen. And so let's work with it, you know? And so it sort of was, okay, I have to, I have to sort of figure this path out on my own. I'm not just going to get into a law school. And they certainly didn't give me any money because of my... LSAT yep. score. Well, um, I just want to add Malcolm Glad- Gladwell, as he does with all his like deep dives into various things. His A Season of Revisionist History, actually, I think there's three episodes dedicated to the LSAT. And he talks about, um, I think he calls it the tortoise and the hare and how the LSAT is all about finding the hares, right? The people who can just test well, quickly, get an amazing score. And that doesn't always or probably doesn't really correlate to success in law firms, which is something the legal profession has to grapple with separately. Um, but if anyone wants, like, just Google that, you'll you'll find it. But so you go to Loyola. And for you, John, I have to cover your practice. So I'm going to speed you up a little bit. But you go to Loyola. The few quick questions I want you to answer about that experience what is it like? Is it an adjustment? And then, and how was it, of course, being in the night program? So just basically say all the things about about law school that people might be curious about. Yeah, I loved it. I loved Loyola. I didn't expect to, but I think a lot of us in the evening program were sort of in the same boat. We're either, you know, working professionals and really just wanted to pursue this this law degree thing, or 
had an interest in law school but didn't want to dedicate your entire time to it or whatever the case is, right? Sort of figuring your life out. And so we really made a great connection. And Loyola is a really special place. Like it's the first private institution I went to. You know, it's it's run by the Jesuits. And I, you know, even as a gay man, I can say that the Jesuits are pretty awesome. So I would say overall, like just a good experience. I was able to start the outlaw program there, which is the LGBT student group. And I did it with another woman who was very passionate about LGBT issues. And we hosted a symposium at Loyola on gay marriage, which I was shocked, but the the school really promoted it and prompted it. We had guest speakers come in, including David Goroff from Foley came and gave his perspective from a constitutional perspective. And we had Greg Harris, who was a state representative at the time, come in and talk about what the state was doing on marriage. And this was way back in like 2008, 2009. So it was pretty cool. Had you been exposed to Foley at all prior to that? Like when, when does Foley come on the scene? So Foley came on the scene. Good question. Foley came on the scene when I decided to start, well, when we did OCI, I guess. So my first summer, I did the Loyola Rome program, which is wonderful. But I didn't, sort of similar to the rest of my history, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So, but I was in law school. But OCI came around and I decided to interview through the OCI process. Uh, I got a couple of rejections. I got an offer from what was then Sun and Shine Nathan Rosenthal. And Sun and Shine in and of itself doesn't exist anymore, but there's they were sort of part of the multi-merger process in the, you know, early, in the late aughts. Yep. And now they're, now they're Dentons, right? They're like, Dentons. Yep. Yeah. They were SNR Dentons for a while. And now they're just Dentons. Yep. That's correct. And I still have some good contacts that I met through that process, even on itself. But Foley came around because they were, they didn't interview and they still don't at, at Loyola um, through the OCI process, but I had attended Lavender Law, which is the LGBT conference and career fair that happens every year through the National uh, LGBT Bar Association. And my mentor through the local Chicago LGBT Bar Association called LAGBAC, Lesbian and Gay Bar Association of Chicago, was Tom Mikrit. And Tom was an attorney at Foley at the time. And he suggested that I give him my resume to review with a couple partners at Foley to help me essentially through the OCI process. So I gave Tom my resume. Little did I know Tom was actually trying to get me a job at Foley. So he took my resume, he gave it to Jill Nicholson and a couple others, probably David actually as well. And Jill actually called and said, why don't you come in and meet with me and I'll talk to you about my your resume and you know we can talk about some things you can improve, what you can, you know, whatever. So I went and met with Jill. We connected right away and and just had a really good conversation. And then about, I think it was about two weeks later, the, the Lavender Law Conference happened. And Tom used that as an opportunity to sort of officially submit me as a candidate for Foley. Yep. He's like, I met him at this thing. Now, he could have submitted you other ways, but also that is such a great example. And I remind law students of this. We're just people working at these firms. So if you can get exposed to the humans that work here. And it's not in like a me sending John Litchfield a 7,000 you know, word email, <laughs> but no. it's sometimes it's that quick, short, like, hey, John, I'm a student at Loyola. If you had 15 minutes for a phone call to give me some advice, often you'll try to figure that out if you can. Worst case, you don't respond. But connecting with the humans just for advice, it's never, John, can you help me get hired? No, no, no. Just advice. You start to scale that, some things can happen. So that's all I'm saying. I agree. And I would say I sort of did it mistakenly. Like it wasn't like I was like intentionally doing yeah. this. I did it through a mentorship program through a bar association, which by the way, I would highly recommend to any law students that are listening, like get out there and meet people, right? And find a mentor, whether it's official or unofficial, you know, whatever. They're going to figure out a way to sort of help you, right? And I little did I know that Tom was behind the scenes working this. I I really didn't think about it. And so that's all to say the two offers I got for that summer in 2008 were Sun and Shine Nathan Rosenthal and Foley and Lardner. And I met with both firms multiple times. I actually, I was in San Diego visiting a friend and I called Sarah Costellic, our recruiting person here in Chicago. And I said, you know, I'm going to be in San Diego and I know Foley has a San Diego office. Can I meet with somebody out there? Because I just wanted to see, okay, is like, the sort of like, I mean, this is going to sound so corny, but the magic of Foley, right? Is it real across all the offices or multiple offices? Right. Or is, is, it, just, is just, it just Chicago that's cool or? 
Yeah. <laughs> so I met with somebody out in San Diego and I got the same vibe. Like it was just a good feel, right? Like that's wonderful. People who are people. So that actually made the difference. And I, I told my contacts at Sun and Shine, who I, again, I still keep in contact with some of them, that I chose Foley and they were so upset. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's great. Okay. So I'm going to kind of put a couple things together here because I do want to get to your practice because you talked about being this, you know, labor and employment generalist. Where does that start? So I'm intentionally not going to dive too much into your summer because at this point, you know, you're a partner at the firm. We've had some other people on who either were summers or are closer to their summer experience. You start at Foley, you, know, you summer at Foley, you graduate law school, you start at Foley. How did we, how did you decide what practice area? And I'm guessing you got exposed to it to some extent as a summer, but how did you go about becoming an l e lawyer and maybe even why? So I actually didn't have exposure to l e as a summer. Um, I didn't work with any of our l e partners in Chicago at that time. I started as a general commercial litigator. As many of you do, by the way, but go on. <laughs> That's right. I mean, and I, you know, I came out during the Great Recession, so it was a little bit of a weird time and there really wasn't a whole lot of work. So I initially started working with Michael Small in the bankruptcy group. Um, and the first case I ever had was also the longest case I've ever worked on. But it was a, a workout scenario. And I love Michael, but I decided I really did not like bankruptcy through that process. And so I had a couple other general commercial litigation cases. Jim McEwen tried to get me to become an antitrust lawyer. He he actually told me last week that, you know, if I ever wanted to come back, he would welcome me with open arms. <laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> it's not too late. So I, you know, I, I had sort of tinkered with a bunch of different practice groups, but there was a a declaration gathering project for a large Fair Labor Standards Act case that Dan Kaplan up in our Madison office had um, needed some bodies on, right? We just had to go to Champaign, Illinois to interview people at, at this plant and, you know, take interviews and, and collect declarations to try and defeat class certification. And I think I think John Garlow was working on it and, you know, Matt Lee and a couple other folks. And so we went down and spent, I don't know, an entire week doing, you know, interviews around the clock with this multi-thousand person facility, gathering as many declarations about how long it took people to put on and take off their protective equipment, (laughs) which was, to me, hysterical. I was like, I can't believe someone's paying me to do this. But that's what it was. And I, and this group of people that we were with was just a ton of fun. And I loved it. And I thought, well, Dan's pretty fun. And this is a cool practice. And I love talking to people about people things. And it sort of, to be honest, took me back to my days at Benny's Beverage Depot. We're coming full circle. Okay, we're Coming full circle. Because I just got to sit there and talk to people. It wasn't an interrogation. It wasn't, you know, a deposition. It was just asking people how they put on and take off their personal protective yep. equipment. And about, and about how long would you say that takes you? Okay, I'm going to type that up, put in your declaration. And where they do it. I mean, some of it was a little personal, I guess, but but it was fun. You know, and you, you got to talk to real life people and, you know, whatever. So it just seemed to me like a really fun practice. And so so I did a couple more of those um, declaration gathering projects with Dan when for this particular client and then decided this was what I was interested in. So started working more with you know, got together with Buzz Epstein and um, a couple other of the partners at the time, Chris Ward, started doing more and more L&E work. And then by the, my third year, I was probably 50% L&E, but I don't think I transitioned fully until I was probably about a fifth year associate, I mm-hmm. think, maybe even a little bit later. But it really, it was a long process. There's a lot, you know, it's a specialized practice yes. area. Uh, people may not think it is, but it very much is. And so there's a lot of nuance involved in it that you have to learn over time and it's really hard to dive right in you know as a as a first year associate unless you've got an hr background well and that's worth pausing on because that's true for lne but but most practice areas and i think one of the hardest things about practice is understanding just how long it's going to take you to one just learn the nuts and bolts of being a lawyer or say a law let's start with a law firm associate let alone developing that subject matter expertise of, oh, yeah, right. you have a FLSA case or Title Seven case or, oh, defeating class cert, that's me. <laughs> like It takes some years to be exposed to everything. And I think that can be really daunting for lawyers because you're used to being good at stuff quickly. Right. And I think law students, you know, 
especially those who've gone right through from undergrad to law school, have always been relatively successful. And they've always, I mean, some people struggle, right? Sometimes it's, it's harder than others. But there is sort of, in a general sense, that I'm successful. I've gotten this far on my laurels and on my studies and on you know my dedication to this thing. And so I should be able to dive right in and do what I think I want to do. But there is a lot of sort of iterative learning involved. Oh, and it's so important. And also, we all need to cut ourselves slack for not being able to think our way into what's our like passions and curiosities. Turns out you actually need to try a few things <laughs> before you can actually know. And I think so much, much of us, so many of us are like, if I just think hard enough, I'll figure out what I want. No, you got to go try some cases and see what you actually like. Although, John, I was hoping, because you touched on how ultimately you're sort of able to plug into a wide variety of aspects of how you know employment-related matters can show up. And what you touched on, whether or not the listeners appreciate it, what you just touched on is more what I would call like the litigation side of things. Like something happened with an employee, we're being sued for something, either individually, single plaintiff, or collectively or as a class action in some form. But you also mentioned that you will do the L&E sides of, I think you mentioned some corporate work. And I haven't actually had anybody on who's talked a bit about that. So if you could take a moment to explain how does labor and employment even come up in that more transactional context and what's the sort of stuff you'll do in that when it does come up? Yeah. So again, it takes a lot of sort of putting in the grunt work at the front end, right? So that litigation experience and see, and being able to sort of spot the the weaknesses in certain things. But the way it works in the corporate practice, and this is what I, it's actually my favorite part of my practice, right? Because I get to work with a bunch of really fun people and build relationships. But the way it works in the corporate practice is if there's a transaction, right? An M&A deal, whether you're either buy side or sell side, or there's just some sort of merger or strategic partnership or whatever the case is, somebody is going to want you to look at sort of all of the nitty gritty employment related stuff, they want you to look under the hood of the company that is in question, whether it's our client that's selling or our client that's buying or some other context, right? And you go in and you stress test the company, essentially. You look at all the documents that they have related to their pay practices and their handbooks and their policies and their employment agreements and their restrictive covenants and all these things that like in litigation, you'd sort of deal with over and over and over again in various contexts and you see the weak points through litigation but through that sort of training that that sort of traditional training you're able to sort of identify the issues in a, in a company that might be good or bad or ugly or whatever the case is with respect to employees and that helps the deal team the folks that are actually corporate folks and the companies value the transaction right and understand exactly where the weaknesses are and where you know, a certain liability in a transaction should yep. stay. And any potential risks and, and risks, what, what right. they're buying. Because you're buying a company, you're emerging with a company, and there's people. Have you been following the various applicable laws or will it be a problem for the, you know, buyer or whatever's happening? That's exactly right. And if you're acquiring somebody and you're afraid of a flight risk, right? So somebody's going to, somebody with key information or the guy who sort of knows, you know, the secret to Coca-Cola, right? If you're afraid they're going to leave, how do you bind them up? How do you tie them up? How do you get an effective restrictive covenant? And those are kind of fun problems that we have to sort of address. And they're interesting. Um, sometimes they come back to bite you because you saw something that turned out either either you were right and they didn't take you know your advice, mm-hmm. or you misread something and then you've got to sort of work it out on the back end. And it's so it's so interesting to do that kind of stuff. I always say that employment law other than maybe family law, is the most sort of real life and exciting and practical because people are messy, right? Human beings are, we're just messy, you know, whether we think we are or want to be or not. And so it keeps us all on our toes and you never know, no matter what you think about some some interaction, some relationship, whatever, you never know where things are going to end up. And it's fun. It's fun to sort of see where those stories go. Yeah, the uh, employment lawyers have a lot of the funniest stories to share. And I feel bad that we're not going to dig even more into your practice. But as I mentioned, when we started, I've had a number of other L&E lawyers on. So listeners can check those out. And for you, I'm going to call it in our last five to seven minutes together. um, A couple of things we need to cover, which is what's kept you at Foley? And then you mentioned a number of times, you know, being being involved with LGBTQ related 
like everything, bar associations, like things in law school and also at Foley. And I want to talk to you about that. But first, let, and I think that might even be a segue. Like if you start, if you talk with about like what's kept you at Foley, you know, 12 plus years. And then let's talk a little bit about all the great work you do for the LGBTQ community. So what's kept me at Foley is, and this may sound cliche or corny, but it's the people. This work, I can do at a million other places. Well, maybe not a million, but I can do it at a, a ton of, of other, other places. places. Yeah. And it would be the same work, right? So it really is the relationships that I've built with attorneys, with staff, with our clients, you know, with people that we work with on a day-to-day basis. And Foley just has a really good reputation. And so it's easy to be an attorney at Foley when you're out in the community because people, they know they know the firm at least, even if they don't know you, and they mostly have a pretty good, you know, impression. Even if they're on the other side of a litigation, they mostly have a good impression. And so I think that speaks volumes for where I'm at. The other thing I always tell, you know, folks who are interviewing that for Foley, either, you know, laterals or people coming in as summer associates, that if I left Foley, it wouldn't be to go to another law firm. Now, I'm obviously saying this on a recorded session that will be publicly <laughs> broadcast somewhere. So if I ever do leave to go to another law firm, well, this isn't a contract. So there you, know. you go. That's right. I will. I'll still send it to you to guilt trip. Be like, John, remember this? What did you <laughs> right. do? <laughs> right. But I, I really, I just don't see myself. I, I like the people enough and the work enough and it's hard work. And there's a lot of, you know, stuff you deal with. that's not so fun in this practice or in, you know, in the, practice of law generally, but overall, like pretty good place to be. So, so no desire to test the waters anywhere else, at least from my perspective. Well, and almost everybody says the people, and this is where I'm like, listeners are going to think I'm proud people to say this, but I don't, but everybody says the people and that's, it's true. Yeah, like, I agree yeah. wholeheartedly, like, like hands down. And then let's touch on for the last few minutes about Maybe we could talk about the LGBTQA affinity group or actually whatever you want to style it. And I'll be honest with you, as the firm's director of diversity and inclusion, like I love using the podcast as a way to share about the many different kinds of people at Foley. But I do hesitate when it's like somebody who's a part of an underrepresented group being like, now let's talk about be like <laughs> this, because that's not something someone in the majority has to deal with. But that being said, I still do want to talk a bit about it because, you know, you're an openly gay man navigating life in a large law firm, and you do a lot at Foley and Lardner to help us connect with and recruit members of the LGBT community. So we need to at least touch on it. So just, I don't know, say things about all of that. (laughs) I could say a lot of things. I don't think I could say them in like four minutes. but You cannot. But I would say this. I mean, I like it is actually a passion project of mine, right? I mean, I think there is a lot to be said about like the LGBT community and the talents that we have to offer and providing safe and and welcoming communities for people who are LGBT, especially people who are LGBT people of color, like there is, or immigrants, there is so much that we need to do. There's so much work to do that I try to use my position of privilege to, um, as a white cisgendered gay man, but at least white cisgendered, to advance those interests. I mean, that that to me is like, it's so important. And it's a niche community in a lot of respects, but it's a community that touches so many other communities. There's so Absolutely. much intersectionality Absolutely. with the LGBTQI community that even though I talk about it as sort of a niche community, it really, it's so broad and it's so diverse. I always have to remind people that I'm like, I know we talk about it as this, like, I'm not, no, no, it's a vast swath of people included in, and they don't all have even nearly the same lived experience, but they all fit under this very large umbrella. Yes. And I, and I, you know, I, like I said, I have to, you know, I've come from this fairly privileged background. I have to, I try to remember that through the lens of my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, you know, there is, there's so much more to learn and to do. So anyway, I have to say, I have to sort of go back to the credit that I give to Foley. You know, the reason I'm here is because of the Lavender Law Career Fair Conference, right? And it's because of Tom Mikret through the Lesbian and Gay Bar Association. And it's because I was out and I sort of have this like, you know, my mom is really sort of active in her community and the way that she engages. And so I think I come by that honestly to like be active in my community and give back and really sort of take what I have as a privilege and and pay it forward. But I've used that, right, to really advance my career, but also to 
do pro bono work that's in, that's in LGBT space. I have a bunch of clients, whether they're paying or LGBT, who repeatedly come to us, right? Or I should say, or pro bono LGBT, but who repeatedly come to us for work. The firm has been incredibly supportive. When I was a very young lawyer, I was tapped to be the president of the Lesbian and Gay Bar Association way before I should have been. But the opportunity presented itself, and I talked to Mike Conway, the former you know head of the litigation group here in Chicago, who's a professor at Northwestern now, and still one of my favorite people at the firm. Well, now he's retired, but you know, formerly at the firm. And he told me I should absolutely go for it as long as I can meet my billable hours. You know, it's it's a huge opportunity to get involved. And I did. And that was great. And that's how I've sort of like, you know, encouraged other people to get involved with their communities because there's there's a passion, especially when you are, you hold an identity, right? That is, that's unique and you can use your voice in a way that that advances others in that community coming up behind you do it. It's it's so worth it. Well, and it's a, it's alignment too. I love that professional and personal alignment and that get the two things going together. Absolutely. I was just about to say, like, if you can find support with your professional career in a way that, you know, advances your own interests and passions, then there's nothing better. I completely agree. Just do it. Well, and then my last question for you, and I, it's so funny that I wish we could talk for another like two hours about various aspects of your life, starting from you being an Oliver up through your legal practice, and of course, everything you were just talking about. Um, but my last question for you is your overall advice. And it's tough because I know there's a ton of great advice, but you have to, if you had to distill it for that law student or lawyer early in their career listening, what are your key takeaways for them on navigating a legal career? It is hard because I. it depends on who I'm talking to. I give lots of different advice depending on the audience. I would say the thing that sort of you just need to sort of get your head around is what you want to do. And I know that's like for somebody who really didn't know what they wanted to do for so long. I guess my point is if you want to be a practicing lawyer, then find a place where you can do that and feel confident, have the support you need, and be able to follow your passion in a way that that you feel comfortable with. And it's not easy when you're interviewing because you only get this sort of limited insight into what it's like to work in a particular firm or with some some subset of people. But find that whether it's, you know, at the first law firm you work at or at the fifth law firm you work at, but find that. If law is not your passion, that's okay too. Like don't feel like you've got to pound a square peg into a round hole just because you got this law degree. I know a lot of people that have pursued a law career their entire lives and they're miserable because they don't like it. And it's not, it's just a means to an end for them. And the people that leave the practice of law because they just decide, whoops, it's not for me. They're the happiest people I know because they made a great decision. And they also have this great degree and this great set of, you know, friends and and colleagues that they made along the way. And I don't think there's any, there's no shame in that. Well, and there may still be space for those people because maybe those people are like myself, the host of the path and the practice. (laughs) But But that's real. But I do love what you said, though, is that ultimately the people who are partners, who are enjoying it, they actually like what they do. And that is a hard thing for a lot of us to accept because it's just, I need to pay the rent. I want to make a certain amount of money. But beyond that, the John Litchfields, they made partner, they enjoy their clients, they enjoy bringing that together with their community. They also like practicing. And that's something that people don't often talk about. But with that, John, I just have to thank you so much for being on the show. My final, final question is if somebody wants to reach out to you with questions or comments, comments, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? They sure can. Litchfield at Foley.com. Feel free to reach out anytime. And I'm a huge fan of coffee meetups. So whether it's virtual or in real life, IRL, I'm here for it. So you heard that. Please take John up on that that offer right there. <laughs> and it's not a contract, but you're free to accept it. Anyway, not a contract. <laughs> and and I have billable hour requirements That's even right. as a partner. So I've got to like, you know, get that in. But if we can find a time, I'm more than willing. We'll, we'll be I'm judicious. But John, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Alexis. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it. 
subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.